Welcome to the fourth and final episode of Phoenix Files. I'm James Fitzgerald, Senior Reporter for New Model Advisor. Thousands of people were affected by the British Steel Pension scandal. They were left vulnerable and helpless and unsure of how they'll be able to afford their retirement. In May 2017, Tata, which owned the British Steel Pension Scheme, reached an agreement to move the scheme off its books. This followed a year of talks with the pensions regulator. This meant around 40,000 steel workers had to choose whether to go into the Pension Protection Fund, a new British Steel Pension Scheme, or transfer out of their gold-plated pensions altogether. That's when the trouble started. Throughout this period, a flock of advisors sped down to towns with high concentrations of steel workers, such as Scunthorpe, Teesside and Port Talbot, to advise those steel workers on their options. What followed was a mis-selling frenzy by IFAs, which was not helped by poor communication from British Steel, its trustees and the FCA. About 8,000 steel workers, mainly from Wales, collectively transferred around 2.8 billion from the firm's scheme in 2017 with many of those steel workers' pensions ending up in risky investments, which have either massively lost value or gone bust. The FCA has acted since the scandal came to light, such as initiating enforcement action against many IFAs and closing many more. But many in the industry say its actions were too little, too late. Nearly six years later, the scandal is still ongoing, but there might be light at the end of the tunnel, as only the other month, the FCA finally announced it's proposing a redress scheme to compensate steel workers. But, the end of the British Steel mis-selling saga, which upended so many working people's lives, still seems a long way off. Over the last few weeks, with the help of a range of industry voices, I've explored what happened with the British Pension Scheme scandal and how it left those involved. Many were affected and many are yet to be compensated for what happened. Let's begin the final episode. Gareth Fatchett, FSL legal solicitor and notary public partner and lawyer for the British Steel Advisor Group, told us how much should be compensated to people who transferred out of the pension scheme. I firstly think that that, that £70 million um, number's wrong. Um, and the reason why I say that is because the FSCS have already redressed about 900 claims and paid out around £40 million, yeah? Now, if there's 7,700 or so transfers, you know, you can do some very simple maths and see that the number will be significantly more than 70 million. Um, the the practicality is that the real killer for firms will be the method of calculation, um, because obviously there's an argument as to whether um, a redress calculation should go and be compared to um, the PPF or it should compare against British Steel 2, which of course wasn't in existence at the time of the transfer. These kind of things make material differences to the numbers. And insurers, I mean, this, the, one, of the, the, one of the kind of context pieces is that this all started in November 2017 with the visit of the FCA team uh, to South Yorkshire and South Wales to remind financial planners about their obligations to, to have to do pension transfers. And then was very swiftly followed in December 17 by uh, Megan Butler's um, communications with the um, Working Pension Select Committee in uh, Frank Field. And if you think about that, that's given the insurers 2018, 2019, 2020, 2021, to, to have renewals in their policies and start to exclude British Steel as a risk. So I, I think the insurers um, have effectively done a very good job on limiting their risk down, which is entirely their commercial prerogative. And that's what they've done. So I think the amount of insurance that is available will surprise the FCA because I think one of the problems that uh, firms have is that if there is a disputed notification of these claims, which there could easily be, 
then uh, the insurers will say, well, we're not paying or we're not paying as much as. And that is a big problem because once you're through the insurance layers and for most firms, their insurance layers as a method of defense is particularly thin, then you're into the firm's capital. And nearly all the firms that we've seen failed the financial resistance uh, assessment that um, the FCA recently put in. So nearly all the firms will fail based upon the FCA's own assumptions of 46% unsuitability and 16% of the gross transfer value being redressed. That would just shove it all onto the FSCS. I mean, the thing is, it's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy anyway, because the FSCS have already upheld 95% plus of claims. The Ombudsman scheme of, uh, are upholding 98% of um, cases that they've determined. Now, with those kind of odds, no firm stands a chance um, in getting to the other side, unless there's some common sense in the way that the redress scheme operates. The whole premise of a redress scheme is based upon the uh, data that the SCA has compiled to say that there has been a uh, material failing. That's the test. They've got to meet a material failing test. They've got to show that the failings on these pieces of advice are widespread. Um, and of course, they've used their assessment of files. Now, of course, you have to be a bit of a geek to get right into the data. And, you know, we've been uh, given that task. But what we will tell you is this is that of the 360-odd uh, files they reviewed using DBAT, 300 or so of them are from firms which they describe themselves as high-risk and problems, uh, some of which have been disciplined, yeah? So the data upon which they sit the argument that they need to have a redress scheme is based on firms that they've already determined to be bad. And this is only a, a handful of firms. It's under 13 firms. So it's not a big number of firms that, that they say have caused this problem. The second um, group is a much smaller group where one or two files was taken from firms August, September last year. Um, and there's about 65 files that have gone out, of which 28 are unsuitable. Now, the, the interesting point is that these are all live firms. These are not firms that have collapsed or are already in the FSCS. And of the 28 unsuitable, we have about 17 of those files that we've got um, and had them re-reviewed by third-party experts who find them to be suitable. Now, there's almost inevitably going to be a massive argument about how DBAT works. So, uh, you know, some good kind of throwaway lines for you, if you like. Um, if you look at DBAT's instructions, there is about 11 uh, examples of unsuitability, but not a single example of suitability. If you look at DBAT, it's all about reliance on income in retirement. But if you think about it, most of the DB remain options would involve uh, very limited um, inflation proofing for the pension scheme member. So once again, you kind of get that this DBAT system is effectively designed to fail. It's also one, one that's been carried out very much in the dark. So not one single DBAT has been revealed to any firm. So no firm has any idea why, if they've been rated or as unsuitable or unclear, that is the case. And routinely firms have said, well, let's show us what you've come up with and why. Uh, and the SCA refused to do so. So you've kind of got this fairly obvious battleground that the data upon which the redress process is being proposed is going to be challenged. Um, that, I think, for most people will be very illuminating because it will it will show that when the SCA decided in 2017 in December that they needed to do something and they were being criticised for being behind the curve, they then built a system which is DBAT and DBAT has been used to justify this approach. And if you say to yourself, well, okay, the, the SCA are entitled to do these kind of things, 
they they should do them in a transparent manner and bearing in mind the last time they proposed a section 404 scheme which was to do with interest rate hedging they got they were heavily criticized for not being transparent in the way they did it um and of course that they'd learn lessons but the same is about the same process and the same history is about to repeat itself because a debat not one single firm that's given any British Steel advice has ever seen an FCA debat. So that you know that's quite shocking, really, because I mean the regulator acts effectively as prosecutor, judge, and jury for um, these firms and can and can put them all out of business, but isn't prepared to disclose the data upon which it does so. It refers to it, but no one's ever seen it. So I think you can see why challenges will come, because um, it's unacceptable that the FCA sit on the data. Any firm that's given unsuitable advice would have to redress the BSPS member to the best they could. Nobody's arguing about that. I think that's one thing. I think um, the perception of firms that are not or have not given this advice is that these are bad firms. But this is just not true. Um, you know, the, it's, a, it's a good spin to suggest that, you know, they, these are fly-by-night advisors. But it's not a fair spin because it's just simply wrong. And if you're standing outside looking in, you wouldn't be too interested with the way in which DBAT works because it doesn't affect you. But if you were inside and looking at it, you think, wait a minute, this is just it's very similar. We think it's very similar to the way the post office handled its horizon system when it uh, went after sub-postmasters and sub-postmistresses. We, we take the view that the FCA's lack of transparency will effectively in the end be its undoing because a court at some point will order that those DBATs are reviewed. And when they are reviewed, then the firms inevitably will challenge the basis of them because if it was right that that level of unsuitability occurred of the 7,700 or so transfers you'd have 7,500 complaints with FOSS and we just haven't. Al Rush, the Port Talbot pension paramedic, says he will continue to campaign for the rights of those who have been unfairly compensated. I think that the regulators would like to draw a line under it. Um, I don't think the line that is going to be drawn under it is going to be a particularly fair one. Um, from my perspective... I think I've pivoted away from campaigning to get justice for for everybody because I think that's happening now. That's you know, that's pretty much going down its own road. That's almost a tick in the bottom that's been achieved. What's most important for me is that we pick up those people who have been unfairly compensated so far. Um, the people, the hundreds and probably low thousands of people who we now know because of the unique circumstances of BSPS who have been treated very badly by FSCS and by the financial ombudsman. That's important for me now. I think we will see um, the consumer redress scheme delivered in some format at the start of next year. I think that that will take a year or two. I know that there is a collective of, of advisors who are considering a judicial review and some of the points that they make are considered good points. Um, I just think it's such a desperate shame. It's just such an awful position that we're in that five years on from this we still haven't got it sorted out i mean i don't know i live with it every day i have steel workers contacting me 24 hours a day sometimes um and although it's not on the national radar anymore this is a massive part of their life it's a black cloud over their heads many of them are ill many of them have been off work it's difficult to describe. So where do we go from here? That's an, who knows? I do not think anytime soon that we will see closure on this. I think we need to include 
the steel workers who have been unfairly and poorly compensated so far as part of the redress scheme. That is so important. Um, people have no idea of how bad that aspect of it is. And as I said before, we only know about this now because of the unique nature of BSPS and Port Talbot and Troster and Scunthorpe, Clanwern and Teesside. But if we roll that out, then the unfair compensation methodology has also been applied to thousands of people across the UK who would not have been able to compare their circumstances. So you could have had a little old lady who was working on the checkout in Tesco who was unlawfully and unfairly transferred out. She got compensation. She might be happy with it, but I've got very little doubt that it would have been done as properly as it should have been done. We've got workers, Jaguar Land Rover, Ford, British Airways, Sony, so many people who have not been given proper fair compensation and that is due mainly to the egregious practice of people within the various compensators. Now that to me has been the biggest surprise of this whole incident um, and we need to closely look at not just the regulator, not just the advisors, not just government but also the compensators. MP Nick Smith says he will continue to fight for the rights of British steel workers. So I remember when all this kicked off in um, the autumn of 2017 and since then I've been in pretty regular contact with the FCA and um, FARS and FSES and all of those organisations saying can you um, uh, communicate more clearly with steel workers? Can you talk about the impact of this decision that's in hand or after that had taken place? And can you make sure the industry uh, probably engages uh, with this topic um, for these people? And I found it, um, or we found it, because there, you know, there are other campaigners on this topic, a hard thing to get the FCA to properly engage. And I've got a sort of wide, big criticism of the FCA, which is I think that they're an organisation that uh, understandably is city facing and is financial institute facing, institution facing, and uh, where it deals with IFAs tends to deal with the big companies because there are so many independent small IFAs across the UK. And I think um, that structural reason is why the F FCA found itself in that place. Uh, and I think since then, um, it's been like pulling teeth to get the FCA to properly engage, uh, do effective activity, and to, um, uh, to come up with a redress scheme early rather than later, and to deal with issues like contingent, contingent, contingent charging earlier rather than later. Um, too. So um, in the round, I'm very critical of the FCA. I've been so consistently and um, the Public Council Committee has now heard their evidence and um, will uh, write up its take on it all uh, in the coming weeks and months. And then there'll be a, uh, a study produced and it'll be interesting to see how the FCA responds to that. My in-principle position about the uh, redress scheme is that it must be as comprehensive as possible and it must be as fair as possible. Uh, one of the things I've noticed in recent years is that people have been left behind in terms of redress. People who applied early for redress and complained um, have done less well as um, uh, compared to people who may 
complain now or be able to get redress now. And so I'm, I'd be looking for a, a redress scheme that um, is as, <coughs> excuse me, as supportive as possible of steelworkers. And um, that's the argument I'll be making. Um, so just, I'm a, I'm a lay person, a member of parliament. I don't have a financial background. I'm not an accountant. Um, I leave that to others. But those in principle points, I think, must be addressed. Shift manager for British Steel and Teesside, Rich Caddy, explained his perspective of the FCA's recently announced redress scheme. It's just sort of changed recently, James. Um, I've looked through the information involved with it. Obviously, going through a DBAT uh, assessment is, is getting a bit too technical for us as steel workers. Um, but the redress scheme, I think, has been quite well thought out in, in the fact for myself as thinking it's not just leaving advisors to mark their own homework um, and that was the aim so basically it has become an opt-out scheme rather than an opt-in um, and I have seen some threatening behaviour from advisors to members that would potentially deter putting a complaint in so at least the system that they have provided now um, which I will make the point of as well, I've not seen one response to a complaint upheld by an advisor. It's always gone to the stage of the FOS to, to make that decision and it's only when an ombudsman comes back, uh, sort of pulls apart the advice, that they can see the technicalities which show that that transfer was wrong. Um, but the scheme, yeah, it, it's, it sort of covers members going forward that haven't raised a complaint. Uh, many are unsure if it was the wrong thing to do, and, and I think it's only time will tell. But obviously, time is sometimes it is against people making a complaint. Uh, but what the scheme fails to do is um, cover members that have, have complained, they've followed the FCA guidance of raising a complaint um, but some of the cases I have seen have resulted in being undercompensated. Um, if this redress scheme may have come out sooner, if they'd have acted quicker, it would have prevented a lot of members losing 18% of that compensation through paying CMCs um, and solicitors. At the minute, I, I suppose I can't really see an end. I think it's going to go on for a long time. I think the redress scheme is good. Um, I think it, as I say, needs to include members that have been unfairly compensated, whether or not that be through a government scheme to make up what members have lost in fees to claims managers and things. Um, but I'd also like to see, and it has been highlighted again from the report we saw the other day, is it, it's not so much the now, it's the future. And I am seeing where members are paying maybe £10,000 a year in fees. Uh, and I'm more in fear of the effect of that over maybe the next 10 years where a member's lost about £100,000 of the retirement. And I don't think there's any need for that. So whether or not the way forward might be some form of a collective scheme for British Steel specifically, uh, to go forward with the aim of reducing them fees, making sure that members are in the most appropriate funds um, and, and that basically they're just looked after. Therese Chambers, Director of Consumer Investments at the Financial Conduct Authority, said advisors who missold were made responsible by the FCA. 
We have taken rigorous action throughout. We've used the full extent of our um, supervisory policy and enforcement tools, um, and we are rigorously holding um, advisors and individuals to account where they've fallen below our standards. And as you know, we are currently consulting on an extremely ambitious and far-reaching consumer redress scheme to put steelworkers back in the position that they should have been. She talks about the process of having to use statutory powers. So these these things are, as I say, extremely complex. This is only the second time that we've used our statutory powers um, to um, bring about a consumer redress scheme. Um, and our work has been in phases where we have had to uncover the extent of the um, the harm to consumers here. Um, a section, um, these statutory powers can only be used in specific instances, and we had to establish whether those statutory, whether those legal tests were met, um, which has required us to do a significant amount of work across the entirety of the divine benefit transfer market, not just in order to establish that um, the advice given to steel workers was a very special case that warranted this type of remedy. Um, that type of painstaking analysis work takes time. Um, and it's important that we um, we do it thoroughly and that we get it right, because obviously the corollary of this scheme is it is going to impose significant redress burdens on firms. She explained how those who followed the rules and gave suitable advice in the beginning don't need to worry about the impact of the redress scheme. If firms gave good advice, then they can stand by their advice. And when they um, review the advice that they've given um, as part of the redress scheme, um, they will no doubt um, find that their advice is suitable um, and that's a good outcome and we have the um, Ombudsman Service in there to provide a, a second um, review point of those conclusions. But firms who have complied with our rules have got nothing to fear from this redress scheme. She hopes those affected will be fully compensated within the next two years. Well, the timelines that we're working to, obviously we've got an open consultation at the moment. Um, that will close at the end of um, June. Um, we're aiming to um, get out um, what we propose to do in the autumn of this year. In the event that we decide to go uh, to set up the Consumer Redress Scheme, that will go live in 2023 um, and redress will be paid um, during the course of 2023 and 2024. So that's the point at which we hope to draw a line under this. Thank you for listening to the final episode of Phoenix Files. If you haven't been able to listen to the previous episodes, you can find them on Spotify via CityWire Advice Show. If you'd like to get in touch about anything we've spoken about during the series, please contact me on jfitzgerald at citywire.co.uk. Thank you very much for listening. This is a CityWire Studios production and the producer was Neve Doyle.